Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your host in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. My guest today is Doug Kakesian. Doug is a physical therapist and CEO and co-founder of Resilient Performance Systems. Resilient seeks to systematically explore the continuum between acute rehabilitation and athletic performance. Resilient's clientele includes athletes and operators from Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Association, professional mixed martial arts, the X Games, Winter and Summer Olympics, collegiate athletes, as well as those in federal law enforcement tactical teams and the military special operations units. Before beginning his sports medicine practice, Doug was a pararescueman in the U.S. Air Force, where he deployed throughout the world to help provide technical rescue capability and emergency medical care to U.S. and allied forces. Doug is a nationally certified paramedic with advanced training in emergency, trauma, and wilderness medicine. In 2015, he was selected as one of the U.S. Air Force's Outstanding Airmen of the Year. Doug received his undergraduate degree in biology from Brown University and a Master's of Arts in Exercise Physiology and Doctor of Physical Therapy from Columbia University. Doug, welcome. Excited to have you on the show. Yeah, Jason, great to be here. And you were kind enough to do this for me, so it's only fair that I reciprocate. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really excited about today's conversation, and, and it's, uh, it, it's great to see you. Um, I have the good fortune of, of, of being here in person in uh, Midtown Manhattan. So I'd, I'd like to start the conversation today by by exploring your uh, your upbringing. Where where did you grow up? What were you interested in as a as a young man? And uh, you know what what were your aspirations? Yeah, I grew up on Long Island, about um, like 30, 40 minutes outside of New York City, and had a pretty unremarkable upbringing. I mean, I I was fortunate that like pretty much anything that I needed was was provided to me. Not a lot was asked of me. I just had to basically go to school, get decent grades, play sports, and um, the kind of the, the kind of upbringing that I'm trying to provide for my own son now, but at the same time, you know, you don't want your kids to be too comfortable, but I was I was very comfortable and I was fortunate in that sense. And I mean, I think ultimately, you know, you want to get to like how I ended up in, in the military and in the, in the Air Force. And I always wanted to do something that was going to, you know, challenge me and make myself uncomfortable just because I never really had that type of experience as a kid. Everything was pretty much provided for me. So I was doing my, my undergraduate studies, like you said, in, in, at Brown, was pre-med, took all the pre-med courses, took the MCATs, and had been interviewing at schools and kind of like was trying to decide where I wanted to go. And this is my senior year of college. And my senior year of college in the fall was September 11th. So it wasn't like September 11th happened and I just decided like, okay, I'm going to go to the recruiter. But because the military became much more relevant around that time. And it's like, well, the military now like actually has a really serious job. Like there's, you know, we knew that there's going to be some kind of armed conflict and retaliation for 9-11. So there's a lot more publicity about the military. And I remember at some point in my senior year of college after 9-11, seeing a Discovery Channel um, special on pararescue. And like I said, at the time I was, I was applying to medical school. So I knew that I wanted to do something in medicine, but I also was very active, you know, played sports growing up and I'd always been kind of intrigued um, as a child by like, you know, special operations training um, and just that whole idea of like having having a rite of passage and sort of like being able to, you know, to prove something to yourself under very adverse circumstances. And I knew nothing about pararescue until I saw this documentary and it resonated with me because it offered the same kind of, you know, physical and, and psychological challenge as other special operations job, but with a mission that I was much more passionate about, like, I mean, I, I was always fascinated by things like SEAL and Ranger and Special Forces training, but those weren't necessarily jobs that very that, that excited me. But being able to kind of go through a similar process, get similar training and physical and, and mental challenge, but with much more like a medical and technical rescue emphasis, like I said, really resonated with me. So saw that special. And then this is in the early days of, of the internet, but the internet was still functioning enough where I could like... I think at the time it was like Yahoo or whatever, just go on the search engine and start reading more and more about this. And the more I read, kind of the more 
intrigued I was, and I kind of made the decision that I didn't want to be the age that I am now. You know, I'm coming on uh, 42 in July. I didn't want to live with regret um, because I never really had like a transformative experience, which in some ways is good. Like I said, I had a very uh, fortunate upbringing, but I wanted to have that experience. And I also just the town that I grew up in, um, really hard hit by 9-11. And that's it's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, everybody was – now was a time when the country was much more united. Everybody wanted to do something about 9-11. And I'm like, well, I'm actually in a position where I can do it. And so I didn't want to kind of be on the on the sidelines while – other people were responding. And this is, you know, in my community, like I wasn't there. I was in college at the time. But I remember hearing stories from my parents that, you know, like there was a lot of a lot of cars in the train station at the end of that day that normally would have been going home because it was one of the hardest hit towns. I remember um, I was a lifeguard at a pool in Manhasset. And the summer going into my senior year, I remember watching, you know, kids play with their parents. And then the next year when I was waiting to, um, you know, when I graduated, I was still lifeguarding, waiting to get another job or going to the military. I remember seeing a couple of those same kids, but this year they were without parents. Mm. So it wasn't like 9-11 wasn't directly the reason why I enlisted, but it kind of exposed me to this job. And then um, I ended up withdrawing myself from the medical school application process and um, enlisting in the in the Air Force. So it was definitely uh, quite a 180 and it was, it was a surprise to my parents for sure. When did you actually enlist then? I enlisted pretty much like a year after I, I graduated. Like I, like I ended up just getting a job. I, I, I wasn't very comfortable in the water, so I wanted to take some time to train up for it. I mean, I did enough research to, re- to appreciate like how difficult it was. And there's some people who are like, ah, I'll just figure it out when I get there. That's that's not me. So um, sure. I took I took a year to like kind of work and so you graduated. And train. You graduated from Brown in 2002 in the spring of 2002. Yeah, and then I ended up joining like a year later. And then it's one of those things where even if I'd wanted to join earlier, like it takes a while. You call a recruiter. They don't respond to you. It's another couple of months before you talk to another recruiter. And what's funny is I didn't know anything about the the guard or reserve. I went to an active duty recruiter initially, and the active duty recruiter was telling me like, oh, you don't really want to do pararescue. It has a high attrition rate. And I'm like, well, this is the only reason I even want to join the military at all. I at least want the opportunity. And because that person really wasn't very responsive, I ended up just doing some more reading. And I discovered that there was a... Uh, an Air National Guard unit in West Hampton Beach. Sure. And they're kind of known for being in the, in the perfect storm. So a lot of a lot of history in that unit. So I'm like, all right, so you're saying that now I can do the exact same job, but I could pick my duty station, be an hour from where I grew up and be stationed in the Hamptons. So yeah. in a way, I'm kind of glad that the process was delayed because when I went through training, all the active duty candidates were like, wait, you could like pick your unit and go on the guard. And so for those of you listening, guard, pararescue, guard, Air Force Special Operations, guard or reserve, it's one of the the best kept, if not the best secret in the military. So highly recommend if you're looking at that, exploring that avenue, look into the Guard Reserve. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, some really solid opportunities. And, uh, you know, you talk about units steep and rich in history, that particular unit. I mean, there's there's several New York City firefighters and fire officers who uh, kind of cut their teeth in, in, in that unit doing some some pretty... Yeah, and tragically, some of them were things. involved in that uh, that helicopter crash as well. Sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah, Absolutely. So we've had several military special operations operators on on the show, uh, but you're the first pararescue man. Um, would you mind describing, you know, kind of the, the conventional and less conventional duties of a of a pararescue man? Sure. So pararescue is one of the few, if not the only, um, job in the military that's just 100% devoted to technical rescue and what's called personnel recovery. Now, personnel recovery can also include sensitive items too. So basically, like. You're in a way you're kind of nine one one for the military. If there's any kind of technical rescue that's that's needed, whether it's like a rope rescue, an extrication from a vehicle, plus the uh, the follow on on medical care, that's kind of like pararescue's wheelhouse. So the the more conventional um, mission, and this is kind of what originally pararescue was kind of created for, was just to provide some kind of contingency for a down pilot scenario. So just giving the the pilots the confidence that if something happens, there's a, a dedicated force group of people that's going to do whatever it takes to recover them and that has the training to recover them in any kind of environment, whether it's like a mountainous environment, maritime environment, urban combat environment. Um, so that's why you get this really, you know, really great breadth of training. Um, and that manifests itself in place like Afghanistan or Iraq where, you know, you might be and this is the more conventional mission, you might be working unilaterally with other pararescue men and say like a, a six-man team, and you're kind of on the hook for anything that can go wrong in that theater, whether it's like, you know, a vehicle gets hit by an IED, 
helicopter crash. I've even had missions where like, you know, um, a drone went down, you had to recover the sensitive items. So you're kind of, you're on the hook for the broader theater and they station pararescue teams throughout the area of operations. And then depending on where you are, you've got kind of a, a radius where you're kind of, when these missions are going on, you assume certain alert postures that you can respond in, you know, um, an expeditious manner. Um, and so the more conventional mission is you're just, like I said, you're responding to the broader things going on in the theater and you tend to work primarily with other pararescue men and other, you know, Air Force assets. So typically like you're going to be attached to an HH-60 helicopter and an Air Force crew. But the more unconventional mission is kind of more of the special operations side of things where instead of working unilaterally with other um, other pararescue men or with like being attached to like an Air Force asset, like a helicopter or a C-130, you might be the only pararescue man and you get farmed out to like a, a SEAL team, to a Ranger platoon, even in some cases like a Special Forces ODA. And you kind of serve as like the, the medic and the technical rescue subject matter expert so that you, you know, you're going on these on these complex mission sets, whether it's like a reconnaissance mission or, or an assault. And even though some of these units have their own medics, a lot of times like what I've noticed is that the medics from these units try to like almost identify more as shooters than they do medics. Whereas in pararescue, like you're really, you're a medic first and you also have that technical rescue capability because you can have a medical capability, but if you're in a vehicle that gets blown up, a lot of times the patients and the casualties don't present themselves to you. They get trapped under something. So we carry the specialized gear to extricate people. We carry ropes, you know, like in a mountainous environment, like, like Afghanistan. So that's the other more unconventional mission is where you're working usually by yourself, or maybe with one other pararescue man, and you get attached to another service. Um, the Air Force has their own tier one unit. So where they, you know, like pretty much any high profile tier one mission that the Army or the Navy does, they usually have a pararescue man and a combat controller, which is like the Air Force's forward, um, forward air, air controllers, air traffic controllers. So yeah, that's it. But the cool thing is like, in my career, I got to do both. Um, so there's is a, a big, like a huge breadth of missions, mission profiles that you can do. And um, yeah, it keeps things exciting because you never know what you're going to be tasked for depending on the theater that you're in. No doubt. Would you be willing to provide some some insight into the selection process and, and training pipeline for pararescue? Sure. And I'll just say in full disclosure, like this has changed. It's a little bit different now. I mean, I think fundamentally it's it's similar. But when I went through, typically most people, like you get a guaranteed contract where you're guaranteed the opportunity to try out. So you enlist in the Air Force or you could go in in a general contract then hope to get a pararescue assignment opportunity, you know, once you're at basic training. But you get to, you go through basic training. And then at that time you went through what was called the uh, indoctrination course. So that was like a, a 10 week course where, I mean, they would say that the, the goal of it was kind of to prepare you for follow on training, but it's really, that's how they kind of select people. Um, so they try to, you know, just because they're trying to be efficient in terms of how they invest money into people, they're trying to eliminate a lot of people on on the front end so that when they go through the more expensive technical training later on, um, you, you've got people that you can be pretty confident are going to be able to handle that physical and, and psychological stress. So the indoctrination course was basically, you know, just 10 weeks of kind of nonstop physical activity, sleep deprivation. I would say, you know, every special operations selection has something that it's known for, for being particularly miserable. I think for us, the worst part was definitely the water. You know, every special operations selection tries to induce stress in a controlled environment in some way because you can't shoot at untrained people in, in training and see how they react. But for us, it was definitely the underwater, the, the subsurface stuff. Um, and that's where, you know, most people self-eliminated was at the pool. And then, you're, you know, you're, you're doing all the, the running, sleep deprivation, calisthenics, um, different like kind of team team building scenarios just to identify like how you work with other people. And then once you got through that, then you went to all the different specialty schools. Like so combat dive school where you learn how to um, dive on open and closed circuit equipment, Army Airborne School, and then the Military Freefall School. Um, we, we went to the the survival school at Fairchild Air Force Base. That was like three weeks of learning kind of how to evade capture and conduct yourself if you if you do get captured. And that was also attached to the um, underwater egress school where you learn how to egress a helicopter, you know, if it has to ditch into the water. And then from there, we um, went to Kirtland Air Force Base. We were there for about a year. The first six months of it was the the medical training that we went through, the formal medical training. So that was like basically a month-long EMT basic course and then a five-month-long paramedic course that included ambulance ride-alongs. And 
the goal of that was really just to get people their national registry because pararescuemen also have like a civilian mission. They respond to domestic emergencies and the, the command wanted, you know, the PJs to have some type of um, medical credential to respond to those scenarios. But then you would you also include some like dirt medicine and military medicine into that. But after the medical training and once people pass their national registry, then you would go to the PJ school, which was basically taking all these other skills that you learn, mainly which were like the infiltration skills, diving, jumping, and then also kind of your actions on the objective, like your your medicine. But the medicine in PJ school is much more kind of military oriented. How do you deal with a mass casualty? How do you deal with providing medical treatment in like a low resource, austere environment? And then we'd also did like all of our small unit tactics, patrolling, you know, weapons training, um, and then all of our, our technical rescue to include the extrication and, and the rope rescue. And then at the end of that course, you, I think we did like maybe two weeks, we went to this remote site, kind of simulated being on a deployment, being on alert. And then you just did full mission profiles where, again, you had to kind of put everything together. So instead of doing everything piecemeal, it's like, how do you, how do you execute a mission from the, the planning stage to the, the infiltration, to the actions on the objective, to the, to the exfil, and then even doing handovers with higher medical care. So it was, uh, it was really cool. I mean, it took, I think it was 18 months of actual training, but that's assuming that you just lined everything up perfectly and you went from school to school between holidays and setbacks and scheduling. It took most people between two and, and three years to, to wow. accomplish that. Yeah. I mean, and you're, you're talking about a very robust skill set, like you said earlier, with a lot of uh, depth and, 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 yeah. and breadth ranging from things that are ordinarily conventional to things that aren't the least bit conventional and um, all, all sorts of types of different environments. What, what's the attrition rate look like historically in, in that program? I, I think I've heard like 80% typically, yeah. 80% attrition? Attrition, yeah, right, yeah. So 20% make it through. Wow. Yeah, and which is pretty comparable to some of the other you know types of those programs and different services. The folks at Attrit have an opportunity to recycle or it's... Typically, if you were injured or you f- like failed out of a school for performance, they would usually give you another opportunity this could be wrong, but I don't I don't recall people that, that self-eliminated being given the opportunity to try out again. Typically, if you self-eliminated, like you quit at the pool, the Air Force would reclassify you to a different job, and then people could come back into the pararescue pipeline after a few years of doing that other job. But that you know, if, if they identified somebody that was like a motivated candidate and that they thought, you know, like wasn't going to quit, they were a little more lenient about like if the person got injured or was eliminated for just not meeting a performance standard, then they would work with you. But typically when people self-eliminated, they weren't given the opportunity to come back for a couple of years. Like I said, that could change. That could be different now, but that's how it was back then. And I know they try to provide a little bit more mentorship on the front end now and not just throw people to the fire. But it's one of those things. It's a timeless conversation in special operations. Like how do they increase the numbers without watering down the quality? And sure. I don't think anyone's like really figured that out yet because the attrition rates like kind of stay the same no matter what they do. Um, but they're they're trying a lot of different things to their credit. Which aspects or elements of the training pipeline um, did you enjoy the most? Not the water. Um, <laughs> I mean, like I, I, I like the medical part of it, but really all of it because it's as soon as you get comfortable with one thing, it's like you're you know you go through the indoc course and that's really like I said, it's not that's not really training. It's more just talent identification. But then you're, you know, you're scuba diving or not even scuba diving. You're on a closed circuit system diving, you know, diving at night where like literally all you can see is just your, your chem like glowing. You're looking at your tack board with a compass on it. And I mean, like we're maybe two, three feet apart. Like I wouldn't be able to see you underwater. You're just, you're staring at your compass and you're navigating underwater. And then from there, you're, you know, you're jumping out of a plane for the first time and then you're, you're free falling out of a plane and then you're doing all, like all the survival stuff. So it was all just so, so novel to me that I, I really... I really enjoyed all of it, but I also recognized that a lot of the cool stuff that you did was just that was your way to get to work, and I was really like passionate about the the medical side of things. Very cool. So the water then was the most rigorous. Yeah, and I mean for me, you know, some people like there were people who were like NCAA swimmers. There was even people people who were like Olympic swimmers or Olympic trials. Like they didn't struggle in the water as much, but um, for me, it was definitely the the water part, the subsurface. But that said, I mean, there were there was I remember. A division one swimmer in my in my class who actually self-eliminated the pool. So even if you're like really good at swimming on the surface, the stuff they do subsurface is just it's a little bit different. And you know, when you're swimming in a pool in a race, you're you're breathing. So sure. some of the stuff they did under the water was was heinous enough that even some very accomplished swimmers didn't want anything to do with it. But 
I can only assume that you grew to be quite comfortable in the water. Yeah, I would say that, I mean, I grew to be very comfortable in the water. Like, if you asked me to do go off a block and dive in and do, like, a butterfly, like, I wouldn't look good doing that. But if you put fins on my feet and you tell me to swim forever or, like, retrieve something underwater, I can do that. I'm not, I'm not graceful, but I'm comfortable. Functional. But, yeah, exactly. So you graduate from school and then you immediately go to an operational unit? Graduate from school. And because I was in the Guard, I knew the unit that I was going to, to go to. So you graduate... You get to your team, and regardless of the unit that you're at, you basically do like kind of a – it's between like four and five. There's like a bunch of line items you have to get signed off at before you're considered mission capable. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like you're sort of repeating what you did at the at the PJ school. And I also forgot to add like the fast roping and the helicopter operations, you know, repelling out of the helicopter. But So you kind of do the – in a sense, redo PJ school with your team – and then once they sign you off on all the skills after like four or five months, then you're considered mission capable and deployable and you could sit alert for civilian missions if your mission, if your unit does that. But while you're getting signed off, you're serving in a reserve capacity, meaning? No. So yeah, that's a good question. Like for the, for the Guard Reserve, you're pretty much your first enlistment, you're effectively on active duty. Like when you're going through the training pipeline, you're in a continuous set of orders for as long as it takes for you to finish the training. So effectively, besides like the title 10 versus title 32 thing you're effectively serving in the same capacity as active duty same thing when you get to your team you don't you don't break your orders go home do a civilian job and then do your upgrade training you go right from the pj pipeline to your upgrade training so even in the guard reserve like if you do a four-year enlistment you're pretty much you're serving in the military that entire time which is a good thing because you need i think enough of a base of experience before you can take on a civilian job and go part-time so i mean i think i spent probably even the first like almost the first six years, not even breaking an order and doing all PJ training. And even even like once you are have the ability to go into a part-time capacity, it's not the typical guard reserve scenario where you're doing like one weekend a month and two weeks a year. That's not nearly enough training to, to stay proficient at that job. So, I mean, even on the, on the low end, people were doing like three to four months of, of training a year to stay proficient. You know, and a lot of the really good training would, would occur, um, you know, off-site, like you go to different trips and schools and stuff like that. So, the, the part-time people like tried to make it a point to to go to those schools where a lot of the training was consolidated. And then, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, there were also people whose civilian jobs were complementary. So we had people that were like in the fire department. We had people who were like on the emergency services unit from various um, you know police forces. So they're doing tactics. They're doing tech rescue. They're doing extrication. And in some ways, because they're doing it in real life, they're actually getting better training than what we would do trying to simulate it. So that's the cool thing about the Guard Reserve. We had people who were in medical school, PAs. So I think in some ways we were more capable than a lot of active active duty units because unless you're deployed you're not like you're not actually doing your job you're simulating it and they do a good job of that but there's no substitute as you know for real world experience and so we had you know subject matter experts in various domains because they were doing these things in their in their civilian jobs so I mean like right after I got out there was a mission where um container ship was on fire a couple of people were burned very badly third degree burns like not able to breathe and luckily we had people there like one of them was a pa so with experience in the emergency room in the icu and effectively on that mission like guys jumped in they jumped in with um an inflatable boat parachuted in disembarked the boat drove the boat over to the container ship got hoisted up and then they were basically running like an icu out of that out of that uh, container ship and they had someone who was a was a PA, so a higher level of medical training than what we were even afforded, you know, in the in the pipeline. So just having people with that capability able to do missions was like a force multiplier and made us even more more capable than what you might find in people who didn't have weren't doing these things on the side in a civilian capacity. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, having been both on the active duty side of that house and the reserve side of the house, you know, I, I see value in both both categories. Yeah, for sure. I should probably also mention that, you know, the time that you're proceeding through the, the training pipeline and you graduate and you go to your first unit, it comes at a time or a period of time where op tempo in U.S. military is like off the chart in terms of real world. Yeah, it was back to, then. To Afghanistan and, and, yep. and Iraq. You know, what was it like then to hit your unit? I think I don't think I deployed for like a year and a half after I graduated because you do your upgrade training and then it just depends on like the deployment cycle. So my first deployment, I actually um, volunteered to go with a different unit because there was a, a unique opportunity to do, you know, to cover down on um, a, a special operations task force with other units. But yeah, I mean, I th when I think back at that, there's a lot going on and I did fine. But when the more experience you get, the more things slow down. 
And I'm just like, I look back at, you know, how I performed back then. And I did everything that was asked of me, but I'm like, I almost have like an imposter syndrome. Like I really didn't know what I was doing until probably like five or, you know, five to 10 years into the job. Like that's when it like really, really slowed down. Like I met all the standards and, you know, when you're initially starting out, like you're a team member, you're not responsible for the mission planning and making sure everyone's doing their jobs. So you're kind of more of a worker bee. And I was like really good at putting my head down, treating patients and doing what was asked of me. But um, it was like, it's kind of a blurry. Like you go through, you're never really comfortable because you're going through the pipeline. Everything you're doing is new. You know, when you're at jump school, like you do your day jump. And then once you get remotely competent to that, then you're doing a night jump and then you're doing it with equipment. So you're always like kind of taking the next step. And as soon as you meet one standard, they, they ask more of you because they they've got to keep the train moving. Um, that's kind of the same thing once you get to your team. It's like you get your go through your mission qualification. Now you're doing missions. And then as soon as you get comfortable just being kind of a, a team member, now they put you in kind of more of a, a team leader capacity. And then you're you're uncomfortable again because now they're asking more of you than being a, you know, just a team member. So, you know, and I'm sure like if I was still in now, I would have gone through that process and they'd find, I'd be doing maybe more of like a command type scenario where that would be new and that'd be uncomfortable. So I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but it definitely kept you on your toes where you could never get complacent. I think that's one of the great things about it is, you know, as soon as you met one standard, they're, they're always asking more of you. So you, you can never get too complacent. Yeah, I think one of the things that people who haven't served in the military don't quite appreciate, or you don't appreciate it unless you've experienced it, is just how much inertia exists within the US, within the US military, Re regardless of the service, regardless of like your occupational specialty, yeah. your community, like it's a it's a move up or move out organization. And yeah. just around the time you finally start to own whatever it is you're doing. Exactly, and that's what I'm getting at, yeah. You're, you find yourself moving to a new assignment, you know, new unit, uh, new personalities, and once again, you you quickly find yourself out, outside your comfort zone. Like yeah. you never truly own. In fact, at present, I think the the comment on the Marine Corps, the current commandant, has some concerns about that that model, and I think wants to maybe kind of embrace an opportunity if there might be one for for people to maybe stay in a billet or assignment a little bit longer, um, so they can truly develop some some expertise. That's important. That sometimes just doesn't. Uh, doesn't manifest, you know, in, in the military, given the nature of the, the move up or move out, we'll see. Yeah, and that's also like a timeless conversation in special operations is like, do you, you know, you've got talented people, so they're always trying to kind of add more capabilities, but it's like, do you, do you add more capabilities to potentially water down the pre-existing ones, or do you keep things the same, or do you streamline and maybe take away some capabilities to make people really good at certain things? And just because of the dynamic nature of, the, mil the missions the military does, and you can never like really predict what the next conflict is going to be. There there's a, often a tendency to like, let's just add more so that people can adapt and, and figure it out because you're not, like no one's a psychic. They can't like predict what we're going to be doing in four years or in a decade or in, in you know, three decades. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the longer I went through, the more I was kind of the opinion, like I think that we could probably have streamlined some things and even taken some capabilities away, even though it's like, Everybody wants to have all these like go to all these cool schools and have all these cool specialties and certifications. You know, you have to maintain you have to maintain that training and maintain the proficiency in those skills. And when you're doing that, like it's only a finite amount of time. It always comes at the expense of something else. But that's you know that's that's a an ongoing conversation as to you know what's the the fundamental mission of pararescue or any kind of special operations unit, and then how do you how do you make the best use of the the very limited training time that you have. Absolutely. There's so many things competing for time and energy. And I feel like to the point that you made earlier, unless you're deployed and acquiring a significant number, a considerable number of reps in a real world operational environment or doing it in a civilian capacity that's complementary, um, oftentimes like true competency and, and mastery is, uh, is is nothing shy of, of elusive. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, people like to, because it looks good from like a, a, a budget standpoint, like certain groups advertise that they have capabilities, but when push comes to shove, like, do you really feel confident in executing that mission? It's like how many... Under pressure. Right. Like how many units in the US military can truly do like a, like a hey-ho mission? You know, like anybody that's free fall qualified, like on paper, they can do it. But, you know, would you really feel comfortable jumping, you know, exiting the plane in one country, being under canopy for 45 minutes, landing in another country with no margin for error? Like there's very few... I would say free fall train people in the military that can do that. So it's like, 
you're advertising the capability, but you can you really do it? You know, and, and I, I mean, a lot of people would be like, I would get in trouble for saying that if I was in, but I think it's the reality. It's like because it takes a lot of time even to to hold uphold that standard, especially because like some of these capabilities are very low likelihood events that you're going to employ them versus doing the thing that you know you're going to be doing very routinely. Sure. You know, so yeah, but that's people who you know were much higher ranking got paid better than me and made those decisions. <laughs> you had a lot of different experiences in deployments while serving as a pararescue man. Are there any deployments or operations that stand out in your mind as having been particularly rewarding? Yeah, I mean, I should say that, you know, any any of them are rewarding because you're you're helping someone out and someone's in a bad place usually when you go and, and you're doing your job. I mean, that's the thing about pararescue is you want to use your, your training, but you, like something bad has to happen to somebody else for you to do your job. So it's like, I wasn't, I wasn't rooting for bad things to happen to people, but inevitably bad things were going to happen because of the nature of what was going on. So, you know, every power rescue man kind of looked at it like, well, if something is going to happen, we want to be the ones to go. I would say that one of my deployments to East Africa was the most, I want to say like rewarding, but it was the most fulfilling from the standpoint that I got to use many of the capabilities that we were trained to do, whereas some of the other ones were more... And I don't want to use the word like routine because like things can go from routine to not routine very quickly. But like my my like Iraq and Afghanistan deployments, we were kind of attached to a helicopter. We we're mostly like either air loitering or just kind of waiting for something to happen. And for the most part, we would just like air land next to a casualty, pick them up, provide medical treatment and route, and almost in a lot of ways like an like an air ambulance type mission. Which I mean that was that was needed, and it was an important part of like you know, ensuring that people got good medical care in, in those theaters. But we didn't get to utilize a lot of our capabilities, whereas in East Africa, it was much more of like the unconventional mission where I was able to be attached to some different services. And a lot of times, like being one of the few medically trained providers versus being in a six-man PJ team where everyone has the medical training. So, you know, like if something medical happened, it's like, well, you're kind of the only one that has this skill set. So like, go do your thing and operating in a in a more unconventional environment, like instead of being attached to a helicopter, like more overland movements, more more vehicle-based infiltrations where you had to be a little bit more tactically sound um, and it was a little more complicated from a, a mission planning standpoint to ensure that everything was executed safely. So I would say the, the Africa one, you know, everybody that has a, a job like that, like it's like if you're a firefighter, you want to fight fires. And th- that was the deployment where it's like, all right, we got to do what we were trained to do. Unfortunately, at the expense of other people, but if it's going to happen, we want to be the ones to go there and do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly uh, appreciate that sentiment. I think yeah. much of our listening listener audience does as, as well. How did your experiences as a military special operations operator and, and pararescueman shape your view on optimal performance? Yeah, I would say it shaped it pretty profoundly. I think that you know, any whether it's like military, special operations, fire rescue there's a lot of skin in the game because you're being asked to do something like in a very high stakes environment and it's not academic. Like everything you can, you can be theoretical but when you have to execute a mission, um, you know, in real time, like whether what you're doing is working or it's not working. And if you have the right people that are like, you know, self-critical and um, thick skinned and you're intellectually honest, you know, it's this constant evolution of, of tinkering and just trying to trying to get better. And I mean, I was in the military, military at a time when like things were very, very busy. So the evolution of just what pararescue was doing, what the military was doing, special operations, it was kind of like unprecedented, just the rate, rate of growth and knowledge that was gained because you didn't have a choice. Like if you didn't adapt, you, you, there was a, like a pretty negative feedback loop. I think the other thing that's insightful was that like, there's always this interplay in the military between how do you create like a really, really competent individual, but also someone that works well as a team. Because, you know, in any kind of, whether it's fire, special operations, like you want people that are very proficient at their jobs as individuals. But a lot of times the mission failure didn't come down to someone like not executing a physical skill, but things like command and control, team dynamics. I think another really important part of just the whole thing, and I mean, you guys know this, is just like, how do you plan to to mitigate risk? These are dangerous jobs, but you know, you want to be responsible and mitigate risk, but if you're risk averse, then you're unable to to perform. And so just like even in training, it's like, okay, we have things like wind limits for a jump for a reason, but that's that's one constraint. But like I've been on training jumps where I was the jump master and the winds were within limits on the ground, but then at altitude where there wasn't a regulation that addressed the winds at altitude, they were like 60 miles an hour. 
And I'm just like, okay, technically we are allowed to do this jump, but does it make sense to do it? This is training. We're jumping over a highway. We've got some inexperienced people. And it's one of those things where when you have very motivated people, no one's going to say they don't want to do something. <laughs> and it's kind of your job as the person in the leadership role so true. to kind of account for human nature. And I, I kind of looked at it like I'm not the best jumper skydiver in the world, but if I'm the jump master and like I'm nervous about this jump, I know the person that's two months out of PJ school is nervous, but they're never going to say anything to right. me. So like, let's live to fight another day. And, you know, like no one really criticized me for it because like we could have done it and been fine. But those are the decisions that you have to make and you're doing that all the time. And, you know, it, it's, it's humbling because you do things that you think are routine, like fast roping out of a helicopter, skydiving. But then, you know, every a couple of times a year, you hear that like someone in the military died doing these things. So you can never be complacent. And that's why I think the military is really good about having things like checklists and emergency procedures. And there's a lot of redundancy, you know, like every time you you do a jump, like basically your, your parachute gets packed by by a rigger, then that that rigger is like that parachute um, job is checked by the senior rigger. And then when you get the parachute as the jumper, you're doing an inspection. And then when, once you put the chute on, the jump master has an inspection. So that parachute is basically being inspected like four or five times before somebody jumps it because you, know, you recognize that humans are imperfect and you want to have a system that accounts for the fact that like if you have a system where you're relying on human beings to make perfect decisions and error-free 100% of the time, you're going to fail. It's kind of like the scenario in medicine where like the nurse, the doctor gives the wrong dose of medication. It's very easy to blame that nurse or doctor, but like why was that nurse or doctor in a situation where the, the life or death of that patient was contingent upon somebody not ever making a mistake? There needs to be redundancy and checks and balances. So the military was, I think, really good about that. And I mean, everything we do now is about like, look at, look at not to have like a conversation about COVID, but COVID policy is all about appropriate risk mitigation. It's like uh, the extremes on both sides, I think are ridiculous. Like the people who, you know, lock themselves in their room and never want to want to leave. Like that's not realistic, but you also can't say that it's not, it's not a thing and it doesn't matter, but how do you navigate the, the in-between and figure out like what's appropriate from a policy standpoint? So I think that like, you know, in my, in my utopian world, like any policymaker would, would have some experience in working with actual risk because that's like, whether they think so or not, that's effectively what they're doing when they make these policies that have very profound consequences for, for society, you know, for, for better or for worse, depending on what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the psychology of risk is nothing short of, of fascinating. Yes. You know, particularly having, uh, having experienced it firsthand in, in you know, lethal and unforgiving environments, um, both in a trading setting and, and, and then downrange in, in real world. Uh, and, the, and the psychology thing, I forgot to mention, I mean, like, that's also a, a key piece is like whether it's like fire, you know, military, special operations, there's a huge emphasis on emotional control and, and composure. I mean, imagine if at a fire, the the team leader was just losing his or her, you know what, and screaming at everybody. Like you, at that point, you're emotionally hijacked. You can't make good decisions. But now that I do stuff and I work with like athletes and I, you know, kind of like consult with the sporting world. In, in, a, in a high stakes environment, whether it's like aviation, fire, military, emergency medicine, like you would never want the emergency medicine physician that's taking care of your child to be screaming at the other members of a team while performing an intervention. But in sports, we see it all the time, like a referee makes a bad call and, you know, like what was ever achieved by by screaming at the, like a, a, an official never reversed a call because someone screamed at them, you know? So, and I actually just gave a talk yesterday. Act, to actually, some, you're probably yeah. less likely to get the next call. Exactly. And I, I, I gave a talk to some high school coaches yesterday and they're, they're kind of looking at me like, wait, like, because there's a narrative that like you should always be playing with like energy and passion. And I'm not saying to be a robot when you do things, but whether it's sports or any of these like high stakes environments, ultimately, like you have to execute a physical skill under stress. And if the psychological piece is not navigated properly and there isn't emotional control and rest restraint and composure, it affects the execution of the physical skill. And I think that's something that the sports world could learn more from the military than a lot of times, like, you know, the sports world will like bring out like ex special operations people to like simulate like SEAL training or PJ training. And it's like to make them like tougher and they just kick the crap out of them and throw them in a pool or have them crawl through mud. And it's like, I don't know if I had 
an athlete that I was paying millions of dollars to. Like, I don't know if that's the best return on your investment to have that person like crawling through mud and lifting logs over their head. I think that the sports world could take so many other things from the military that would be a lot more effective and transferable than just like, but we're like enamored by what we don't understand. We romanticize it. I think people associate military training with selection when, like I said, the selection piece is not training. That's just talent identification. It's, it's to weed people out. No special operations people before they go overseas are crawling through mud and running around with logs and sitting in the cold water <laughs> and just being, well, you know, yeah. It's, it's funny that you mentioned the, the glamorization of um, certain aspects of special operations culture, namely the indoc or the indoctrination yeah. phase or selection phase. Are, are there any other stereotypes or misconceptions about operators that, that drive you crazy having been? Well, that's, that's the biggest one is that like, that's, that's not what the military actually does from a training standpoint. Like watching a, you know, a, a BUDS special on the Discovery Channel, like that's not how SEALs that are qualified actually train. You could say, oh, this doesn't really matter, but like there's been... It doesn't happen a lot, but there's been high school athletes that have died because their coaches were doing this kind of stuff. And it's like they really didn't die for nothing. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, you die on the field because you had like an undiagnosed heart condition or something that you can't really, you know, there's no there's no preventing that. But you can prevent someone doing something dumb and training that has no carryover to making you a better athlete. Like I said, I think people take the wrong things. Um, the other thing is that like, you know, special operations personnel, like they're people just like everybody else and they're, they're error prone and they make mistakes and they're not, a, you know, like they have the same vulnerabilities as other people. Like they do, you know, some of them drink too much. Some of them are, you know, not loyal to their spouses. Like, so there's a thing like where if someone has a special operations background, they're an expert on every possible subject. And I don't, right. I don't like deference to credentials and experience. I think that like, you know, ideally you would have two people, you wouldn't know their backgrounds. You wouldn't know anything about them. They'd just talk about their ideas. And people would, instead of these narratives, you know, taking shape, we would we would gauge people based on the merit of their idea, not on like, you see it now with like some of the, um, and again, this is a whole separate conversation, but like with the gun control stuff, like if I am a, a right-leaning media platform, I'm going to have an ex-special operations person say like, well, I carried an AR-15 in Afghanistan and I think everyone needs it. And if you're a left-leaning platform, you're going to be like, well, I was in Afghanistan and I don't think anyone needs an AR-15. And it's like, that's not like really that helpful. I mean, I'm not saying that special operations people can't have nuanced, insightful, you know, comments on something like what's the best gun control policy. But the fact that you like you carried a gun in war, that's not what makes your idea, I guess, like superior to anybody else's. Like we have to talk about like, what's the idea and is it, is it rational and is it logical versus just like, well, like I did this thing, I was a special operator. Like you could write a book on whatever you wanted. And if you said, I, I came from this background, like people would, people would buy it. I'm all about like capitalism. I don't blame people for buying it. If there's a market for it, good for them. But I think that the civilian population needs to be a little bit more discerning when it comes to that stuff. Because people, again, they romanticize not just the special operations community, but the military at large. And there's some great things that the civilian world can take away from the military. But you know better than everybody, anybody that like the military can also be one of the most dysfunctional institutions imaginable as well. So and that's kind of the we all have like a love hate relationship with it, you know. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, this notion that e expertise in one skill set is universally transferable. To, yeah, to all, how you do one thing things. is how you do everything. Like I think it's yeah. kind of BS. Yeah, some of it is certainly uh, at, at times comical. I'd like to uh, transition and spend some time unpacking your experience and expertise as a physical therapist. When is it that you knew that you want to become a, a physical therapist and what, what inspired you to pursue that career? Like I mentioned, I thought back in undergrad that I wanted to go to med school. And even at that time, like I thought if I was going to go to med school, I would I wanted to do something in sports medicine. But if you go like the, the physician route, typically like the sports medicine tract is you either become like an orthopedic surgeon or more of like a... Um, like a physiatrist where you're, you're not doing the surgical part, you're doing like the non-surgical part. And the more I kind of learned and just even like doing some of the medical training and pararescue working in hospitals, I kind of came to the realization that I wanted to do more of the um, preventative side of things and, and not just like address pathological tissue, but really like help work on function more than pathology. I mean, a surgeon, you know, they repair pathology. Your anatomy is compromised. They fix it. If you're a physiatrist and need an injection because you have inflammation somewhere, I, I was more like, like I said, I cared more about the, the functional side of things. Like how do we make people robust through the, the rehab and the, the training process? So when I knew that I didn't want to, I was in a guard unit, I didn't want to like make the military a full-time career. It was great because I could do a job that I loved in pararescue and then also go to physical therapy school 
at the same time. And you know, ultimately, once I finished school for that and like started my own practice, then it became hard to do both things. But I was able to make it make it work for as long as I could. And then, so you attended uh, graduate school at Columbia University. Yep, and that's how we met. Yeah. While while there, you I guess attained a doctorate in, or a doctor in physical therapy. That's correct. Okay. And then you decided then to open your own your own practice, having first worked for someone else, or never worked for someone else. I mean, I knew I didn't I knew enough about physical therapy that I didn't want to do it kind of the traditional way, where it's like you're kind of overworked, underpaid, and the healthcare system is its own conversation. But typically in physical therapy, because everything is driven by insurance reimbursements, most of the clinics are in network with insurance, and because the insurance companies reimbursed a fixed amount of money. If you want to be profitable, you have to have more of like a volume-based business model than like a, a quality-based business model. And so that's why like, you know, if you've ever had gone to physical therapy, most places like they're seeing four people an hour, you might spend like 10 to 15 minutes with the actual physical therapist. And then the rest of the time doing kind of a generic exercise sheet with, a, with um, you know, somebody else. It's not a physical therapist. And I just knew that I, didn't, I wouldn't have been fulfilled in that environment. I mean, I would have rather have done a different job completely. Like no disrespect to people who do that and like it. It's just not what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to see people one-on-one for an hour where I could just feel better about the job that I did and not be as constrained by the, the insurance companies. And I also wanted to kind of combine physical therapy and rehab with performance training. And, you know, in a typical physical therapy clinic, like you don't, you're not, you're not able to do that because you don't have the equipment, you don't have the space. So it's like, if you're working with say like a firefighter and you're responsible for their rehab from so like a surgery to when they return to duty. I mean, right before they return to duty, you should be doing things that somewhat mimic the functional demands of firefighting. And most physical therapy clinics like realistically aren't doing that. I mean, a lot of people just kind of get better. But going back to like what I learned from the military is I don't believe in false confidence. Like I believe in really being prepared for what it is that you have to do and just having somebody do, you know, a bunch of band exercises and clamshells and a couple of stretches and then saying, go fight a fire or go play football. Like I think you're, you're leaving too much the chance that I would have been uncomfortable with that. So the biggest thing was I just wanted to be able to practice the way that I thought would be the most effective. And that's why I started my own thing. And I also just wanted to have professional autonomy coming from the military where like everyone's your boss, you know, kind of like office space. I'm just like, a lot of people leave the military and they become very kind of, you know, like they want to work for themselves. <laughs> that was me. I'm just like, you know, I, I want to be responsible for whether the ship sinks or whether it crosses the ocean, you know? Sure. Well, I mean, it's certainly an ambitious endeavor to graduate from school, um, begin practicing as a physical therapist, and then simultaneously kind of launch your career in an entrepreneurial And I had no idea what sense. I was doing. I mean, like, I look back on it, and I'm like, it worked out, but I mean, sometimes you just got to do stuff, but like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know anything. I wasn't like systematic about what I was doing, and, but And not yeah. to mention that you, you launch your practice and open your practice here in, in New York City, yeah. which probably comes with its, its share of challenges. Um, For sure. As well as opportunities, what what were some of the biggest challenges or obstacles? Um, well, you know, starting out, I mean, obviously the the price of real estate, commercial real estate, it's like very expensive. So, just to you know, again, go risk mitigation. Like initially, instead of like getting our own standalone space, there was like I knew I wanted to work in kind of more of a gym setting where I would ha- be able to access some of that equipment and offer like a, you know a higher level like end stage rehab. So, there were some gyms where you could like lease a private room or a treatment table and do it per hour. So the financial commitment wasn't that significant. Um, so you only like you only paid rent, so to speak, when you were seeing somebody. So I started out doing that. And then once I like knew that I had, you know, a certain amount of income consistently, consistently coming in, my partners and I ended up like we we rented a room, you know, for the month. And we had exclusive utilization of the room. So no other providers could use it. And then once we got comfortable with that, we're like, okay, if we really want to grow and scale, now we're ready to like we have to, we should get a standalone space. That was kind of the the evolution of it. But I mean, the biggest challenge was definitely COVID, you know, like we were, I mean, on a rocket like trajectory, we were, we had just signed a lease for a standalone space. And the lease that we had signed was more than three times what we were paying for our old space. Wow. And then within three weeks or two weeks of signing that lease, we were shut down for a couple of months. But again, it's like, would you rather have someone that, you know, doesn't really care about you (laughs) getting you out of that hole or yourself. I mean, yeah, it's more stressful because it's your business and you're responsible, but it was challenging, but we we made it through. And it's like, if, if we didn't, like I would have found something else to do. It's, you know, I mean, 
there's like anything else, there's a mourning period in the beginning where like you kind of feel sorry for yourself for a little bit. And I, I gave myself like, okay, you, you got a day to feel sorry for yourself and then let's find a solution. Or just recognize there's things that you can't control. Because when, when COVID first hit, everyone's like, okay, I'm going to completely pivot to, to virtual stuff. But I think as we've seen, people, there's still a place for in-person. That was like, that was our business. So are we going to change, like totally change the identity of our business for something that's probably going to return to normal at some point? So it's also like knowing kind of what your what your identity is. And even in the face of adversity, knowing who you are and not deviating too much from it, just because people feel the compulsion to do something. A lot of times like, yeah, stuff just happens and you've got to roll with it and take it. I think trying to be a busybody sometimes can work against you. Cause like, are you really thinking it through or are you just anxious and you want to do something to make yourself feel better? It's kind of like in the military when a general comes to visit and you're, you're, you're you know, pulling weeds out of the ground just to like, cause they don't, you don't want the general to see you watching TV because that's what you actually do all day on deployment. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. this is the reality. Like pulling the weeds isn't going to change anything of what we're doing, you know? What are some of the uh, unique opportunities that you, you think you've had as an entrepreneur being here in Manhattan and New York City? I mean, you get to meet some really interesting people. There's just so many intelligent, thoughtful, talented people here. And even just organically, you're able to create a very, a very good network. I mean, in a lot of times, like, you know, I, I like I actually helped a patient get a job because a different patient was was hiring. So I learned probably as much or more from my patients as they do they do from me because like I said, there's so many super talented people here. We'll probably touch on your uh, your network here later when we discuss your uh, your, your podcast. Um, through your work with Resilient, you advise teams and organizations on program development and injury risk mitigation strategies. I have a number of questions specific to injury resulting from gear and personal protective equipment, what we commonly refer to in the military as a, as a tactical load. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that some of my questions are probably biased because I do have a strategic ad- agenda as it relates to the American Fire Service and the inordinately heavy, bulky, clunky, and cumbersome gear that we, we wear in the name of... Uh, safety. So of the units and organizations that you've worked with as a physical therapist, what what units and organizations do you think carry the, the, the most or heaviest load in a tactical setting or in an athletic setting? It might, it might actually be PJs because, you know, carrying all that like extrication equipment, medical equipment. I mean, there, there's infantry people who are, I think, carrying in some cases up to like 80 to 100 pounds patrolling. I didn't work with them directly. I mean, that's at that point, you're like almost combat ineffective, and I know that's kind of like what you're, what you're getting at. But you know, some of it is like because we are a contingency, and if we're going on a mission, we have to be prepared for an extrication scenario. You you have to bring like I don't. There's no getting around it from a pararescue standpoint. Like you've got to bring the jaws of life. You've got to bring the lift bags. You've got to bring um, the the saws, the, the the quickie saw, and all your medical equipment. But there's a lot of times like you know they've got all these these like rucksacks where on the outside you could always like add pockets and stuff like that. And there's always people that like, you know, just wanted to add more and more. What if this, what if this, well, we're talking this? about, we're talking yeah. about a dismounted foot patrol. Yes. Like a helicopter touches down in a remote. Yeah. But even, even, even if it touches down, I mean like, yeah, sometimes, sometimes you do have to patrol with that stuff. Yeah. Uh, obviously if, if you're just flying to the, to the objective, then yeah, it's not a big deal. But I, I would say if you're talking more about like foot patrols, probably infantrymen. I mean, the special operations task forces, from what I saw, tended to go very light because when they're going through a house, like they have to be fast. Um, and if they're wearing 80 pounds of gear, they're not going to be able to move that well through through the house. And there's also like they're always chasing people that were running off the, the target and stuff like that. And the, the enemy was very maneuverable. Like they didn't carry a lot of stuff. So if you want to keep up with them, you can't be too too heavy, no matter – regardless of your fitness. Um, As a conventional warfighter, I was frequently envious – of special operations guys in, in the, the sense that one they had better consistently have better gear yeah they're like the next generation ahead of us conventional guys and that they ultimately had a, a far lighter load as as well yeah and if you know if you don't have a, if you're in an infantry unit you don't have a resupply for however many days and you've got to bring stuff to sleep out food i mean unless you're going to get resupply jobs drops like it's 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 hard to work around that but you know i think it's I am kind of like an essentialist. I'm always like, how can we do less, not not more? Um, like I was the person that didn't want to add more pouches to my gear because like I said, you, it comes down to safety. Like you could, what if everything to death, but at a certain point you have to figure, you have to like determine like what's what's the most likely scenario and be prepared for that. Because if you're trying to prepare for everything, then you're preparing for nothing and you're also going to overwhelm yourself and it becomes almost 
neuroticism to to a certain point. But yeah, I don't know how you can be combat effective with with 100 pounds. Um, especially, I mean, it's one thing if you have to carry this gear and technologically, like that's the best stuff available. But if you're talking about like from a fire service standpoint, like if there's better gear to be had and you could do the same job, but cut your weight in half. I mean, to me, it's it's a no brainer. And I know that everything comes down to money, but I would just say like, if you're, if you're <laughs> I don't know how much money the fire department spends on disability and things like that, but I feel like lighter gear would ultimately, you know, you, you get you get a better ROI on it because how many people are broken from just wearing all that gear for for years and years and years? It's going to take its toll on your body, and it also makes you less less mission effective. Like ultimately, if your job is to put out fires, like are you going to be better at putting out the fire if you have eighty pounds of gear or if you have thirty pounds of gear? If you're not sure, then like you can run the tests and, and collect the data on it. But I'm you know I think in a lot of these cases, people don't collect the data because they don't. They don't want to know. They know what the answer is, and they don't want that to be demonstrated. Which I don't know if that's what you've encountered. Yeah, well, you you raise a couple of interesting points, and I think it's 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 kind of important to reiterate that you're unique and that you're a subject matter expert, both when it comes to the body's function and performance in a tactical or athletic context, and you're also a highly trained, experienced operator who has been heavily reliant on good gear and PPE in lethal environments. So. You know, you have you have great insight, and th- th- there is there's there's an optimal balance that a commander has to achieve between reducing exposure to lethal exec- effects without hindering performance, or worse yet, doing chronic damage to the body. Yeah, do you want do you want acute damage or chronic damage? Like that's kind of the trade off, you know. But oftentimes, that, that operational or tactical unit leader is is only assuming responsibility for the acute of- effect. Yes. Not the cr- the not the chronic, like yeah. 10, 15, 20 years later. When that lands corporal, right? Or it's, that much, corporal it's much easier to prove causality has, in has an acute chronic, scenario. Has yeah. chronic hip hip damage yep. resulting from the inordinately heavy load that he was carrying in the mountains of Afghanistan. Yep. It, it, it's, it's really like uh, it's, it's not directly impacting or even indirectly impacting at that point. Yeah. And as you know, I mean, the, like the energy expenditure goes up exponentially once you're over like 40 pounds of external load. I mean, like the deployment that I referenced in... East Africa, I mean, like there were people that, because there were, there were some foot patrols, like they weren't wearing any body armor and you could say that that's unsafe or cavalier, but it was also like 110 degrees and humid. So, I mean, yeah, like if you don't have a plate, you're at more risk if somebody tries to shoot you in the chest, but you're also at more risk of being a heat casualty and you know you're going to encounter the heat if you're patrolling. So it's, there's no perfect way to do it, but I think the conversation definitely has to be had because we, we always go with like, well, you have to wear body armor, you have to do this. Well, and a lot of times people that say you have to do it, it's like, all right, well, why don't you? And I think the best way to kind of tease this stuff out is the people who insist that you have to do it. It's like, invite them to your training scenario and be like, okay, why don't you come with us? And we'll all wear body armor together and this 110 degree foot patrol for 10 miles and, and then we'll do one without it. And we'll see, you know, what, <laughs> a lot of times the evidence speaks for itself and, yeah. and you compromise your ability, you know, you're, you're dehydrated, malnourished, like you can't execute a complex complex task when you're in that fatigued state and you know you're going to have to do actions on the objective. So it's it's tricky. Yeah. And I might regret saying this on, on the record, but um, one of the things I've, I've noticed in recent years and sometimes I joke about when we talk about the modern day load that firefighters are carrying um, is that I feel like it, you know, you, you get some of these huge conflagrations and fires in the winters and it's not uncommon for a number of chiefs with stars on their collar to show up when they have all their PPE on. You get that same fire during during a day here in the city where it's like 95 degrees and the heat index is well over 100. You don't see as many of the chiefs showing up with stars on their collar wearing the, the PPE. And they're not walking up the stairs either. I mean, they're, they're um, outside. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and, and summers are, are nothing shy of punishing. For you guys, I mean, does the technology exist where you could cut your, your weight pretty significantly? <laughs> uh... My sense is yes, but there's so many layers of bureaucracy th- that exists. Like the, because f- somebody can make a lot f- of money if they make eh, lighter weight bunker gear. You know, they they could, but they would be probably navigating a, an, an uphill battle in terms of like industry industry standards and the standards that have been yeah. have been set. set Go- government for, interfering like, with the market. Like the, the yeah. fire service, in, in some ways, has its own defense industrial complex. I believe it. Um, 
you know, that in some ways... There's a lot of stakeholders that don't want competition, is, basically. Is a bit of a kind of a self-licking ice cream cone, you know, okay. similar, to, similar to, to DOD. But one of the things that DOD has been able to do, has been able to figure out or figure it out over the course of the 20-year post 9 like conflict was how to reduce the soldier's load considerably. Yeah. And, I, and I think finding a, a more optimal balance or increasingly optimal balance between force protection Right and PP that affords the soldier, or marine, or sailor, or airman protection against lethal effects, while you know not uh, requiring that they wear a, a, a load that's like entirely un, unsustainable. Yeah, a lot of this stuff pre-war was was theoretical, and there's been enough opportunities to actually test it. So the less abstract you make something, you usually come to the right conclusions. Yeah, you mentioned earlier like the continuous adaptation that that was a result of a 20-year conflict where there were significant periods of really high high out tempo are you familiar with sla marshall's the soldier's load and mobility of a nation by by chance no i'm familiar with some of his other books but not that so it was mandatory reading when i was a uh, young second lieutenant attending the basic school um and it was based on a loosely empirical study that marshall had done during the second world war okay. in terms of de- uh, determining what the sweet spot was, or what what load was functional, yeah, right, or or, or not counterproductive to a soldier's function in, in combat, and I want to say, if memory serves me correctly, it was somewhere in that forty pound. Yeah. Um, of course, as a as a species, we've 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 probably evolved, if even marginally since then. I think it's fair to say most of our guys today serving are probably in a little bit better shape, probably a little bit bigger. Just curious. If you're familiar or if you're aware of any kind of post-9-11 empirical studies that, that have been done with the DOD or within the special operations community that offer insight into what the, the optimal load is or appropriate load is for a well-conditioned tactical athlete today. Not specifically. I know Natick does a lot of that stuff. And, you know, optimal is obviously just it's met T. It depends on the, the mission and those contingencies. But, sure. you know, a lot of times, like, we think that we're having – a unique conversation and like whether it's military or fire like we're the only ones that worry about this stuff i think if the military wanted to gain more insight into what some of these you know the suitable loads are go talk to alpinists because they're they're constantly evolving and now there's much more of a movement towards like fast and and light climbing um or you know stowing your gear at certain waypoints so that like when you make an ascent and you're at higher altitude so i think that like yeah, the military should conduct its own studies, but also talk to people who are doing this. Granted, it's not in a tactical environment, but the physiology is, is the same. You just take out the, the tactics, and I think that there's a lot of people that are doing really good cutting-edge work in that space, but they're more like climbers in the, in the alpine community. That's a great thought. All right, so I'd like to, to end today's conversation with a, a rapid fire of sorts. Um, in your sparse free time, uh, you, you, you manage to host a podcast a performance podcast and a blog. I, I encourage our listening audience to check out some of the 100-plus high-quality conversations you've hosted with several solid thought leaders in the performance space, thought leaders like Sidney Decker, David Epstein, etc. cetera. Your, your podcast is both informative and thought-provoking. So here's a quick rapid fire. Favorite episode that you've you've hosted? Probably the um, either the Tony Holler episode or the one with uh, Andy Morgan. Tony Holler is a, actually a track coach and a chemistry teacher. He talked about kind of the parallels between coaching and teaching and just the educational system as a whole. And then Dr. Morgan talked a lot about psychological preparation, psychological performance. And those are the ones that I kind of refer to most often because there's no other reference. Like a lot of the other guests have books that I've read where I can refer to the book. But these in these cases, I can only get the information from the podcast. So I refer to them the most. The infamous Dr. Charles Andrew Morgan. Who yeah. I should mention has been a tremendous asset. Oh yeah, for, I'm glad for you guys connected. For both the FDNY and leadership under fire, in large part because you were kind enough to connect us with. That's Andy. great. Andy's Andy's the best. Okay. Uh, favorite performance-oriented podcast other than your own? So I actually don't really listen to performance podcasts because I just I'm so inundated with that stuff. My favorite podcast is probably Econ Talk with Russ Roberts. I just think of it as more of like a big picture, critical thinking, um, very intellectually honest and nuanced and so even though it's not directly related to performance, I think that it is because it kind of addresses some of these timeless philosophical issues. And when you deal with people, which is what performance ultimately comes down to, you need to understand that stuff. All right. Interesting. Favorite performance-related book? Sports Gene, David Epstein. All right. 
Favorite performance-related documentary? Again, probably, I mean, haven't seen a performance documentary, but I would say my favorite documentaries are the Ken Burns ones, mm. um, whether it's like the Civil War, World War II. And even though, again, it's not directly addressing sure. performance, it, it kind of is. I mean, the same things that we were talking about right now, like manifest in every conflict and, you know, because people are people and they don't really fundamentally change. Um, all the stuff we complain about is like military people. They were dealing with the same stuff back then. All right. And he's, I, would, I should mention his, uh, his documentary on America's past time baseball was pretty iconic Okay, I haven't well. seen that one. I'll check it out. And lastly, is there a particular topic or idea or intellectual problem set that you're particularly excited about? Something that keeps you up at night or has you up waking up early in the morning? I would say it's how to do things at scale and, and how to just like how to influence behavioral change. I mean, I feel like a lot of what I do, it's not. If I knew people were going to do certain things, like if your back hurts, if I knew people would actually take 10, 15 minutes a day to do the things that I gave them, I'm pretty confident that most of them would get better. But it's like, how do you get them to do that? So I've definitely simplified my approach and I'm less concerned with optimal like, and more concerned with compliance and what I think people will actually do. I think we're in a world now where we're obsessed with data and optimization and, and as, as if like, you know, we, we, don't, we don't solve problems because we lack information. I think we have more information than we need. And a lot of times it's, we don't know how to apply the information that we already have. And it's because we're dealing with people and we don't know how to get them to change behavior. I mean, do we really need to learn more about nutritional biochemistry to get people to lose weight? Like that's not, that's not why we have some of these health epidemics that we have. It's like, how do you get people to do certain things? There's obviously societal factors that are outside of an individual's control too, but I'm just more like, my thing is like, how do we induce behavioral change and then do it on a large scale because in the model that I work in one-on-one -on -one for an hour, I mean, people are spending time with me, but how do I get them to do things on their own so that things that I offer them that I think are valuable, how can I deliver it to more people in a way that they're going to comply with it? Interesting. And similar to leadership or optimal performance we talked about earlier at length, it goes back to, uh, or risk, goes back to the psychology of it all. Yeah. All right, Doug, I really appreciate you taking time out of your, uh, your busy schedule to, to join me for the conversation today. Some really great insight into your uh, into your service in the Air Force Pararescue, the important work that you do as a physical therapist, and some of the, the thoughts you have as it relates to uh, the, the contemporary soldier and first responders. Lord, appreciate you, you, you joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun being here. Thank you. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership